Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. morning, open your Bible with me to the book of Galatians in the first, first chapter. The book of Galatians in the first chapter. We're continuing this morning our study through the book of Galatians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches of the region of Galatia. As I've told you before, this book is the key to understanding uh, the new covenant and the transition from the old testament to the new from the old testament to the new testament it's the key to understanding what is the relationship of the law of moses uh, that was made at sinai the covenant of the law of moses that was made at sinai and the covenant of jesus christ that was made at the cross and understanding the relationship one to another. These are things that the church has wrestled with, argued over, discussed over and over and over again. And being a part of the reformation of the church that took place in the Catholic uh, church 500 years ago with Martin Luther and John Calvin and uh, all of the ministers that were involved with that, Ulrich Zwingli, and all the ministers that were involved in that, to leave the system of religious effort by which men believed that they were justified to the grace of God uh, has put certain ideas in our mind. In many ways, we have uh, swung in a good way, away from legalism and form and tradition and those things, but ending up as Christians speaking about the law in a way that the New Testament never would, right? And so we are trying to understand the nuances, the details. Yes, we are not saved by our works. We cannot be saved by the law. We are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is grace that saves us and nothing else. The word of the Lord says that we are not under the law, but under grace. And that is wonderful and is true. And Paul warns the Galatian believers that those who are telling them you cannot be saved unless Unless you are circumcised, unless you are keeping certain parts of the law of Moses, that he says that this is a false gospel and that it is no gospel at all and that the person who preaches a false gospel is accursed. And so we have to understand the nuances of all of these issues. And as we seek to understand this, we get to a qualifying statement of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. The book of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. 
And we find that Paul feels that he has to not only defend the gospel, but defend his salvation, his apostleship, and his revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that came not from man, but from God. And so we see him, before he deals with all of these issues, saying, this is the motive and the goal of my heart. It is not to please men, but to please God. Amen? And so let's look at this statement from the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want to speak to you this morning this issue, serving for the good of many, but for the approval of the one. Serving for the good of the many, but for the approval of the one. Amen? Can we pray and seek the face of the Lord this morning? I tell you this morning, we need the help of the Spirit of God to understand the Word and to let it become powerful and transformative in our life. Will you be desperate with me this morning for the help of the Holy Ghost? Let's pray. God Almighty, we ask you that you would come and that you would be the teacher of our heart. Lord, that the same Spirit of God that inspired these words would be the same Holy Ghost that would be at work in us to reveal Jesus to reveal his ways, to reveal his gospel, to light the path for us. We ask you that you would continue to purify and purge our faith from trust in anything other than the gospel of Christ. And we ask you that you would help us to understand your word and how your word was given to us. Lord, that we would trust in God and not in man. We ask you that you would come, that you would speak to us, make all things plain, and make it real, in Jesus' mighty name, amen, and amen. Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? As we deal with this text this morning, one of the things that we have to understand is that this seems grammatically like a strange transition from the things that he just talked about to what he's now talking about. We have to understand in verse 6, starting there with Paul's admonishment of the Galatian church and his correction of the wrong faith that they have and their transition from faith in the gospel to something that is no gospel at all. We have to understand what he's saying. We talked about this last week. Let's look at verse 6. He says, I am astonished, I'm shocked, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him, deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Do you remember what we talked about last week? He says that you were called to God. So we see in verse 4, he says, 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So we were in the present evil age or world. We were part of all of that world that is cursed and separated from God, that God called us through the gospel of Christ and the gospel of his grace, and we came to God through the gospel of grace. And he says, now you are deserting him. You are going from God to something else by turning to a different gospel. So the gospel was the bridge that you crossed to get to God, and then these other people pressing upon you that you have to do this, this, and this, and this in order to be saved was a bridge that led you away from God. Not that you're no longer saved because he calls them brothers, he calls them children, he repeatedly talks to them as if they are saved. The Spirit of God is not only in them, has been in them, but is continually at work in them, telling them that they are being led away from God, that the grace of God is no longer working in their life the way that it should, and they have frustrated their relationship with the Lord by believing this wrong gospel. And so he says at the end of verse 7, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the first thing that he tells them is, you came to God, but now you've left him. That's strong language, right? How would you feel if I stood in the pulpit and told you that? You come to church, you think, we're going to church just like normal, everything's okay, yay Jesus, praise God, hallelujah, we're saved, we love the Lord, you sit in church, you worship, you sing, the word's coming, we're going to learn about Jesus, praise God, and I stood in the pulpit and said, you came to God, but now you've walked away. How does that feel? What does that do to your heart? Does that make you go, I'm so happy to be here. We love you, Pastor. These are strong words. But not only does he give strong words to the people of the church of Galatia, he gives strong warnings to those who have brought another gospel to the church. Listen to what he says in verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is sort of a hypothetical statement saying, the point is not that you're leaving my doctrine, and the point is that it doesn't even matter if an angel from heaven comes to preach another gospel. The point is that the gospel is called in Romans 1 and verse 1, the gospel of God. And no one, not an apostle, not a teacher, not even an angel from heaven, has the right to change what is the gospel and so it's hypothetical no one can change this because no one has the authority to change the gospel but then he gets a little more specific a little less passive a little more assertive in verse 9 where he says as we have said before so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received Now notice he says, if, but the whole point of the entire letter is that there are some who are preaching a different gospel. That's the immediate accusation. That's the first point. There are some who want to trouble you. This is Paul's opening statement. Someone is preaching to you another gospel. And if there is someone preaching to you, hypothetically, if there is, we know that there is, and they're probably still with you, probably some of them listening to this letter being read aloud to the churches. He says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
Let them be anathema. Let the wrath of God abide on their life. Let them be a doomed thing, something destined for destruction. This was the word that was used to describe a sacrifice that was intended to bear the weight of the curse of sin. And so devoting it to be sacrificed was to anathematize it. It wasn't dead yet, but it was doomed to die. It was cursed already, even though it might not be slain yet. And he says, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Yes, they might not be facing the full wrath of God right now, but the the wrath of God is already on them. They are going to be destroyed by God. So he says in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If you study the rest of the letter, and we'll come to these passages later, we won't go to them now because there are so many of them and there's so much context to each one of them, it would really be too difficult to go over all of the detail, but we will as we go through the letter. You'll find that they are accusing Paul of being wishy-washy. They're accusing Paul of being someone who's trying to seek the approval of people. That he doesn't really have an authoritative gospel. He's not really an apostle because he's not part of the original 12 or the original 11, if you don't count Judas. He's he's not really got an authoritative gospel because there are things that he's saying that the apostles in Jerusalem are not really saying yet. And so the accusation is, you are not an apostle and you seem to be wishy-washy, Paul. And if we took the time to go to all of the places to compare the issues at hand, we would see that there are times that Paul acts like a Jew, keeps the law, does things that are necessary under the law, and times that he doesn't live under the law. And the accusation of the Jews who have come to the region of Galatia and then followed him all the way to Antioch and are beginning to argue with the Gentiles that are there is this. Paul seeks to please and be approved of whoever he's with. He's a chameleon. If he's with Jews, he preaches the Torah. He keeps the law. He eats kosher. He does the things that a Jew is expected to do under the law. And then he gets with Gentiles and goes, hey, I want everyone over here to like me, so I'm not going to put these restrictions on you and tell you that you can't eat this and you have to be circumcised and you have to observe these feast days. And so Paul is a people pleaser. And the point of this statement is to say, am I acting like a people pleaser now? If there was a good way to make sure everyone hated me, it would be to tell the two groups of people that I'm writing to, one that you came to God and now you've left him, and the other one, you're cursed of God. Do I sound like a people pleaser now? Do I seem seeker sensitive in a way that brings compromise? Do I act in a way that's, that's flippant and non-discerning? Am I not a man who stands for truth now? You're walking away from Jesus. You guys are going to hell. Oh, that Paul, he's so soft on his theology. Such a people pleaser. He's saying, whatever you think you can accuse me of, you try it. But don't accuse me of being a people pleaser. Right? Because if there's a good way to make sure that I never get invited back to the regions of Galatia to preach in these churches, I'm pretty sure what I just told you is the way. One minister that some of you would know if you've listened to him, 
said, I get invited to preach at a lot of places once. Right? Oh, there's a name. He's well known. Everyone talks about him. And then he gets there and begins to pick on their pet doctrine and to tip over sacred cows and to slaughter them. And they go, oh, we don't like you. Thank you for being here. Here's a love offering. Don't come back. Paul's saying, I want to come back. I love you. I'm in the pains of childbirth over you. I want to make sure that your faith is secure. I want to make sure that you're believing the gospel. I want to make sure that you're solid. I wish that I could change my tone with you. I just don't know about your faith. And so the point of the message that he's saying is, I am not worried about what people think of me. Let's deal with these words Paul says at the beginning of verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? In other words, it's either or. I can't do both. I think this is the same root idea that Jesus says when he says, no man can serve two masters, for he will either love the one and hate the other, or he will hate the one and love the other. Because masters are demanding. The very nature of a master and servant or slave relationship is that the master owns the slave. And he has the sovereign right to do whatever he wants with his servant. And the doulos, the one who is voluntary, voluntarily signed up and said, I am giving my life to you forever, has agreed to these terms. Right? This is the way that the servant, if he served his master and said, you know what, I love you, I want to stay with you forever, you are a good master and I always want to walk with you, I always want to do your will, the man would co- go to the doorpost of his house and he would take an awl and put it on his earlobe and drive it through with a hammer so that for the rest of his life he was marked as a man who said, my life is bound up in the will of another. I am devoted to do the will of another. There is one whose plans and goals and motives and the way that he accomplishes them is something that I can give my life to and it feels like a worthy sacrifice. And he said the nature of the master and the servant is the master feels entitled to always be demanding and ask just as much as he wishes of his servant. And if you have two different people saying, I need you here at this time to do this work and to do it well and to do all of these things, and another master that says, no, 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 I need you over here, eventually you're going to go, I like one and I hate the other. Trying to please both will be exhausting. Okay, well, he wants me to do eight hours of work, he wants me to do eight hours of work. Maybe I can try and go do his eight hours of work and then I'm tired and exhausted, then I'll leave and go his eight hours of work. And eventually, you will begin to resent one. You can't do both. It's a dichotomy. You have to choose. You have to choose. And he says, am I trying to choose, am I trying to choose pleasing man over pleasing God? Is that what I'm doing? Is that the nature of my character? Is that why I'm preaching that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised? Is that why I'm preaching that we don't have to keep the feast days? Is that why I'm telling you you don't have to do all of these other things? Is it because I'm a compromiser? Is it because the the standards of God don't mean anything to me? Is it because I don't care about what Scripture says, that I want a convenient gospel? 
said, having to write this letter is not very convenient. It's not getting to be very wishy-washy. Drawing a line in the sand and making a hard distinction between who are God's people and who is not based on what they believe is not convenient. It's not convenient. Am I seeking the approval? A lot of translations say, am I trying to persuade? And that's actually the root meaning of the word of persu- is to persuade. But the idea is the end of persuasion. To persuade someone to an idea is to get them to agree with that idea, but then to approve of it and enjoy it and be pleased with it. He said, am I trying to get people to see things my way? To, to think that I'm okay, or am I trying to get them to approve my ministry? Or am I trying to be approved of God? Do I want God to say of me, well done, thou good and faithful servant? And then he asked this, or am I trying to please man? Am I trying to make people happy with me? Am I being inconsistent? He says this, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus will not allow me to call myself a servant, to say that my labor is for heaven and from heaven and that my message is from heaven if I'm trying to please him but also trying to please people who are flippant and inconsistent and misinformed and their culture changes them and circumstances change them and their priorities change. And if I were devoted to them and their perspectives and their wisdom and their thoughts, Jesus would not allow me to be his servant. I would no longer be the servant of Christ. Can I make a point to you this morning? He's about to begin to describe that his salvation and his apostleship are from God. In verse 11 through chapter 2 and verse maybe 10, where he's defending his apostolic ministry and his calling and all of these circumstances and events. But before he's doing that, he's verifying his motives. Because this is what we love to do when we disagree with someone is we make assumptions about their motives. Don't we do that? Don't we do that? I've even heard preachers today, ones that I look up to and respect, who will call out wrong ministries that are wrong, that teach wrong things or believe wrong things or do wrong things, But sometimes I believe that they make character judgments about the intentions of people that they don't have the right to make that judgment. They may be wrong, they may be mistaken, they may be inaccurate, but you don't know their intentions. Now that's not to say that their message is right, but it's to say that you don't know the heart of people, right? That's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me very quickly where we have to be careful about judging the motives of people. Very careful about judging the motives of people. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as well his ministry and his message are being challenged in Corinth. And he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of student stewards that they be, f- be found faithful. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Listen, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Can we judge doctrine? Can we judge behavior? Yes, we have to. We have to be able to tell between good fruit and bad fruit, good doctrine and bad doctrine, right behavior and wrong behavior, but we don't know the heart of people. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm looking inwardly. I'm being as introspective as possible, saying there's no conviction, there's nothing in Scripture, there's no witness of the Spirit that I am wrong. But I don't believe that because of that, I am absolutely blameless, that no one can accuse me. I don't believe that somewhere down the line, I won't read a text of Scripture, and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost make it alive to me and go, oh no, oh no. I was wrong. You remember where David cut the corner of Saul's robe? He felt nothing wrong about that action before he did it. And it says after he did it, then his heart smote him. He was convicted. He realized that he had done something wrong. And so Paul says, these people are judging my motives. They don't even know me. Their judgments are shallow. And his whole point is that whatever people think of me, they cannot judge my motives. My motives are God-centered. And that's the point of the whole beginning of this letter, is that it is God-centered. All of Paul's greeting and introductory remarks have been God-centered and God-saturated. This is the difference between the religious carnal minds of men and the work of the Spirit of God and the gospel is that there is a gospel that is man-centered and wisdom-centered and philosophically centered. And, there are, and then there is the gospel and then there is the, the Word of God in the way that God intends for us to serve and it is all centered on the Lord. Listen to this, verse 1, Paul's apostleship is from and through Jesus Christ. God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 3, Paul says that the grace and peace that the Galatians need comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ radically gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He did this because it was in line with, quote, the will of our Father, of God our Father. Verse 5, to God... And our Father, Paul ascribes glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6, Paul reminds the Galatians that the reason they are saved at all is because God called you. We see also, he says, how did he call them? In the grace of Christ. Verse 7, what message did God call them with? What does this mes who does this message belong to? The message is the gospel of Christ. Amen. So it's all the Lord. It's God. It's his wisdom. It's his word. It's his way. It's his salvation. It's his truth. It's his ministry, his message. And Paul says, my life belongs to him. I'm not trying to do what is convenient. I'm not trying to do what is practical. I'm not trying to do whatever works. Forget what works. Forget practicality. Be faithful to God and let God be in charge of the results. 
How many missionaries served their entire lives, suffered miserably, incredibly, unbelievably, and never saw any fruit from it? And yet Jesus will say to them on the last day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He reminds the Galatians that this God-centeredness, this God-saturatedness is not a mere theological formality, but the driving factor of his life and ministry. Paul knew what all who do the work of God must know, that the servant of God must labor for the good of the many, but only seek to please the one. Amen? I don't care if you're working in nursery. I don't care if you're working in children's church. I don't care if you're involved in the outreach that we're trying to do on Saturdays. If you're trying to help with the flood victims, if you work in the office, if you work in the school, whatever ministry you do for the Lord, if it is wiping the bottoms of your children, whatever you do for the Lord, you might do to people, you might do for the good of people, you might do in the sight of people, but you do it for the Lord. Amen? That we are seeking the approval of the Lord. God's preachers speak to men, but they speak for God. Jesus' disciples love their brothers, neighbors, and even their enemies as their own selves, but they love God above all. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven serve the least of the men of earth so that the high and exalted God can lift them up in due season. And it has been said that those who live for the praises of men will die by their criticisms. Paul said, I'm happy to serve you, I'll preach to you, I'll labor for you, I'll wash your feet, I'll care about you, I'll do anything that I can. My life will be spent for you. But if you never appreciate it, if you never reciprocate, if you say all of your ministry to us, Paul, all of the churches of Galatia are going to reject you and push you away and say, we'll never let you come minister to us again. You don't have any relationship with us. You're cut off from us. I'm still satisfied because I didn't give myself to you. I give myself to God in your service. I'm trying to bless you. I'm trying to help you. I want good for you, but you are not my master. The Jews are not my master. The Gentiles are not my master. I give myself to you in his name. Amen? When a man loves his wife, he doesn't love her because if I love her and serve her and cover her and bless her and lead her, then she will appreciate me and love me and submit to me finally the way that she should. And a wife, that doesn't, that a wife doesn't love her husband because if she honors him as the Lord and serves him and is a helpmate and blesses him, then that man will suddenly be motivated to say, let me be good to my wife the way that I should. That might be the consequence of that faithfulness, but it also might not. And if we get upset because we did what was right and it didn't work, then the motive was wrong from the beginning. We do that because it pleases God. Amen? We do it because it satisfies the heart of the Lord. Paul didn't know this Theoretically, he knew it because he saw this faith lived out in the very life of a man that he watched die. That this Paul saw Stephen stand up as a faithful witness of Christ and preach the word of God and minister to the heart of men. And they took this man out to stone him. And he said, I see the heavens open. 
son of man standing at the right hand of God. And he cried, God, Father, don't hold this charge against them. And even in the face of that faithfulness and mercy, they killed him anyway. It didn't sway men. It didn't move men. Men didn't see it and go, oh, let's make sure that all the sacrifices that you've made for us are now rewarded. And we appreciate you, Stephen, and you almost were willing to die for your faith, but praise God, you didn't have to. And we get to say, we love you, Stephen, and we're grateful for you, and you brought the gospel to us, and praise God, it all worked out. And it was a utilitarian gospel that you did it because it was practical. And it practically worked in your favor. Stephen said, whether I live through this moment or I die later, either way I'm going to die. Either, if I escape this fate, I may die on the way home. I'm going to face God. I've got to be a faithful servant of the Lord not because it might work for me, but because he is worthy. This morning, we were going to show a video to you for the India missions, but the audio couldn't seem to work. And it was the testimony of how the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, came into being. If you read the newsletters from Blessed and Christina, which I hope that you do, then there was a link to this video and there was a text outline that described this event in the email. But in the Welsh revival in 1904, God's presence was miraculously manifest and poured out on his people in the Welsh revival. And they were so ministered to by the presence of God that a great missionary work went out all over the world because the Spirit of God that cares about people begin to be poured out in their life. And so one man left that place, left Wales, and went to India. And he travels to a village to preach the gospel. And everybody warns him, these people are savages. They're headhunters. They'll kill you. They're known for their brutality. Don't go. And he goes anyway, and he preaches the gospel. And one family gets saved. And this family... So excited about Jesus that they go and they start telling their neighbors and ministering to them and sharing the gospel with them. And the chief hears of this and is enraged. And he drags this man and his wife and his children in front of the whole tribe. And he threatens the man and says, you need to turn from Jesus. Stop following this Jesus. And the man says, no, I have decided to follow Jesus. And in rage, he kills his two children. He says, now deny Jesus and stop following him. And he said, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. And in rage, the man kills his wife. He says, now you will certainly stop following Jesus. And turn from him. And he said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. 
and they killed the man. And the whole tribe was moved. What was it that this man was willing to die for? What did he have that he was willing to lose his children for? What was so worthwhile? The entire village gave their life to Jesus Christ, believed the gospel, and were born again. Even that chief that killed this man and his wife and his children. And years later, that testimony was shared with missionaries who were there. And they put music to it and sing the song that we know today. The cross before me and the world behind me. The cross before me and the world behind me. The cross before me and the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back, though none, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided. I have decided. Come on, lift your voice. To follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided no turning back, no turning back. No turning back. Paul said, I am a servant of Christ, and I am indebted to believe what he commands me to believe. I am indebted to preach what he commands me to preach. I am indebted to do what he commands me to do. Though the world hate me, Though the world scorn me, though even if God's people turn their back on me, I am the servant of Christ, and I have no other choice. I say to you today, the gospel is not an option that we have. We don't get to go up to the buffet line of God's table and say, these are the things that I want, and these are the things I don't want, and here are the things that are convenient, and here are the things that are costly. Here are the things that turn for my blessing, and here are the things that might have terrible consequences. We take it all, for I am the servant of Christ. And I say to you today, if you would only make your heart available, to say, Lord, I want to be the servant of Jesus, and there might be a terrible price to pay. There might be a terrible consequence. Brother Renee, would you come? But I've decided to follow Jesus, and I want to be his servant. 
but I can't afford to be called one way and the other. I have to be singularly minded. And Paul would say to these Galatians, I've been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. Crucifixion is painful. It was intentionally designed to be the most difficult way that a person could leave this world. This is where we get the word excruciating from. And Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? You want to follow me? The road that I'm on is marked with suffering. Its only decoration is blood and flesh and grit. Those who follow me lose all else. There are no men who survive crosses. That was the one definite about the cross that you knew, that it overcame all of its victims. The Romans crucified millions of people, and there is not a single record of any person surviving being crucified. And I tell you this, if you come to Jesus Christ and you want to follow him, you can be sure that to follow him is to die. That something of this world will be lost forever to you, and you will be lost to it. But on the other side of the cross, there is resurrection. Except a seed fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. In what way is Jesus calling you to take up the cross today? To serve him, to be faithful, to be the servant of Christ in a way that may have no practical benefit. You can't look at it and say it's guaranteed that if I allow myself to go down into death by obedience and faith, that I'll lose everything of the world, but I'll get everything back and it'll all be good. What if Jesus were to say to you what he said to Paul? You're going to preach, you're going to serve me, but you will suffer greatly for my name. I'm letting you know up front that it will cost you everything. But I'll be pleased with you. Would that be enough for you? That's the call. That's the gospel. So this morning, I encourage you, if you would, stand up out of your seat and come kneel down in this altar and seek the face of the Lord let God minister to you let him speak to you we must do business with God there is a reason that we call this the altar there's a platform because it's functional so that people can see those they're worshiping with or hear those they're, that are preaching to them but all of God's people throughout the New Testament, when they needed a word from God, when they needed to repent, when they needed God to move in their life, when they needed to meet with the Lord, wherever they were, they made an altar that they might do business with God. And that altar was the place of faith that the sacrifice of an innocent victim in their place appeased their sins so that they could come near to God. 
And it also was the place that they laid down their rights and their privileges and their priorities and they died to themselves that they might live to God. And this morning, we make an altar to pray. In this altar, turn around in your chair, but to do business with God and say that the blood of Jesus is enough to bring me into the very near presence of God, that Jesus died for me so that I can have all the access to the Father that I want, and that by the blood of Jesus, God will hear me. But it is also a place for me to give myself to the Lord and to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. If you would this morning, seek the face of the Lord and let him minister to you so that you can say, Lord, I want to be nothing but the servant of Christ. And if I seek to please man and I seek to preserve my life and I seek to do some religious thing but also to serve myself, help me to know that I am not the servant of Christ and I must be all His and His alone. Let's pray this morning. God Almighty, we ask You to come. Lord Almighty, we ask You that You would honor our faith as we come to You and say, Lord, we desire to be the servant of Christ. We desire, Lord, to honor You, to seek the approval of one, to seek to please only one. Lord, that in our ministry, in our serving, in our love, in our worship, in our prayer, we might pray for others. We might serve others. We might preach to others. We might try to persuade others to a godly life. We might try to work with others and be unified with others. But Lord, it is only on all that we would please you and that we would be approved of God. Lord, that you would come and be the master of our life. In Jesus' name, have your way face of the Lord this morning, saints. Let him minister to you.